Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 402nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today's episode is a tribute to the legendary actor Ed Asner, who died on Sunday at the age of 91. Asner's death of old age came less than two weeks after I interviewed him for a feature in our magazine, which we also recorded for this podcast, always intending to run it today. Sadly, it turned out to be his last interview. Asner's screen acting career spanned 64 years and hundreds of projects, but he is best known for playing Lou Grant, once described by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most endearing characters on television, close quote, on both the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the landmark half-hour multi-camera comedy series about TV journalism that ran from 1970 through 1977, and on Lou Grant, its spin-off hour-long single-camera drama series about newspaper journalism from 1977 through 1982. He won five Emmys between the two shows, making him one of only two performers ever to have won drama and comedy statuettes for the same part. Uzo Aduba is the other. Asner's two other Emmys were for massively acclaimed miniseries, 1976's Rich Man, Poor Man, and 1977's Roots, making him one of only three performers ever to have won statuettes for dramatic, comedic, and limited series, the others being Aduba and Cloris Leachman. And he made fans in younger generations through his work in films like 2003's Elf and 2009's Up, and on the ongoing Emmy-nominated Netflix comedy series, Cobra Kai. A 1996 inductee into the Television Academy's Hall of Fame, he was also active in Screen Actors Guild politics, serving as the union's president from 1981 through 1985, in causes for people with intellectual disabilities, as someone with an autistic son and grandson, and as a mentor and friend to younger performers, many of whom have shared loving tributes to him since his passing. As you'll hear for yourself on this recording, Asner was sharp, funny, and pugnacious right until the end. On the pilot episode of The Mary Tyler Moore Show, his Lou Grant famously told Mary Tyler Moore's Mary Richards that he hated spunk. Ironically, it was Asner who had spunk in spades. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Asner, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making the time. And I guess to begin with, always like to just ask our guests if you could share where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? 
I was born in Kansas City, Kansas. My parents, God love them, soon long departed, were uh, proprietors of a junkyard, a scrap iron yard. And that's where I grew up across the street from Armour's Packing House, one of the big employers of Kansas City, Kansas. So you were born in Kansas City, Missouri, but you grew up in Kansas City, Kansas? You've got the real facts, huh? <laughs> Missouri Hospital. Yeah. Kansas City, Kansas was somewhat primitive at the time because I was born so long ago. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure that the records have been destroyed by multiple fires. <laughs> but that's, let's not forget floods. True. Floods in Kansas City, too. I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, he was saved by Harry Truman. Yeah. But he, he instituted a uh, regrouting so that the Kansas River would not flow at flood time into the Missouri River and create great havoc, which it had up until the point that I came out. Well, I, I give you full credit for that. And uh, <laughs> so let me ask you, uh, I was... I was surprised to learn. I didn't know this, and I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to learn. You were not born with the name, first name, Ed, right? Probably that crap. (laughs) You know, we're religious years, anyway. Yeah. Given a Hebrew name. So my Hebrew name was Yitzhak, which is Isaac. And it was transliterated into Eddie. What were you called at home and by your friends? Schmeckle. Michael? Schmeckle. Oh, Schmeckle. <laughs> okay, so the idea of acting, I know that there was some sort of a high school class that involved radio, and then in college it became the stage. But what, as far as you remember, what was the beginning of even any interest in, in acting? Well, I was a stellar student at... Uh... Hebrew school. At times I was the only student. Well, I had big hopes for me. And I was a grave disappointment to him. But uh, I needed to revolt against something, and I revolted against the religion. But I had a strike force father, so I could only take it so far. (laughs) And he was not thrilled about you getting into acting? Never mentioned it because it became a fact and it was too late. <laughs> so after going off to college, you, you I guess, left, but having had, a, having had a taste of a little bit of theatrical work while at school, why did you, what, is that what got you hooked? Or, or? Yeah, work was in radio in high school. Uh-huh. I years of radio. Florence Hoare was the teacher, uh, a very nice teacher, too. And uh, she drilled us on the expertise of creating a, our own program, which we had on a local station for 15 minutes once a week. Wow. And that excited uh, We taught us to write and to produce Sound effects, gas, act, everything. I learned nothing. 
<laughs> I uh, volunteered to act whenever I could. Is uh, he playing the the masculine males of whoever was needed in any playlist? So that was my theatrical background, other than the Sunday school plays that I participated in uh, my earlier years. I know eventually you you were drafted, and I wondered, I, I know that this involved performing as well. Like, what was, no, when you were, when you were, after you were drafted into, I guess, Signal Corps, what was, what were, what were you doing? Well, I, I we were trying to evade being sent to the front lines in Korea. <laughs> I was doing, like everybody who was rationally thinking. <laughs> uh, in my case, I, uh, I volunteered and uh, was eventually chosen to go to Fort Monmouth, where I saw flying saucers. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. That was, uh, what year was that? Probably 1953, somewhere along there. And uh, while being engaged there, I decided, hey, I'm an actor. I want to be an actor. I want to find a way. To so I'm going to go and, and uh, tell them at special services that I'm an actor and that I want to be reassigned. So I went to the non who was in charge of that desk. And he uh, listened to me and he, uh, I said, uh, I'm an actor and I'd like to be assigned to special services. I didn't give him my act because I didn't have one. <laughs> and he said, eh, eh, eh. We're 50 miles from New York. What the hell do we need you for? You're right. You're absolutely right. So I sadly and definitively went back to learning radar <laughs> and was eventually assigned to the Signal Corps and stationed not in Korea, but France. I spent my war years in France, but there was no war going on there. Well, that's uh, that's for the better. Yeah. <laughs> it never recovered. <laughs> so, but wasn't there something, if, if I've read correctly, that while you were with the Signal Corps, you were also performing for troops, I guess? Or was there not, is that not correct? Not correct. Okay. I wanted to perform for troops. I have the cutest wigs. You would have loved it. They didn't need me, as you can see. Okay, so now what leads you to Chicago? I know there was a start, sort of a startup theater company, right? Well, I, I um, went back to plotting my duties as a Signal Corps radar repairman which I didn't work at. I worked in the uh, incoming office for the small group that I was stationed with in France. Then almost uh, two weeks, a week before I went home, I got a letter from Paul Sills. Paul Sills, whom I had known at the University Theater in the brief time I was there. And he said, hey, we're going to be making a theater 
On the near north side, we're going to be doing old classics and new plays. Come join us. And I immediately wrote him and said, my life is sound. I will come and join you. <laughs> I went back to Kansas City and spent a week there to welcome myself to the family fold. And then went to Chicago to begin rehearsals the next day. Now, this was the Playwrights Theater Club, right? But it, it became the Compass Players, is that correct? It, uh, the Compass Players, and then uh, tonight at, at 8.30 that was in there, Compass Players, and then finally um, the wonderful... Chicago Improv. Second City, right? Second City. Let people second Now, when you were when you were there for, I guess it's like 1953 to 1955, this was not yet an improv place, right? Was that part of what did you how did you feel about improv? Didn't know that much about it, but when Paul would suggest this routine or try that routine to discover a meaning of a scene, we would do this or that, and uh, I guess I practiced it without knowing. Why then ultimately do you go to New York? Is that because there was a hope to do screen acting or, or Broadway, or what was the goal? Well, I, I was getting wonderful reviews in two of the Chicago papers, the Sun-Times and the Daily News. And uh, the other two were the Herald American and uh, the Chicago Trib. I believe Claudia Cassidy wrote the first review of the play that they opened with, which I was not there yet. And she ended her review or said something in her review. We said, playwrights and I walk on different political sides of the street. Oh, oh, oh. trouble be a brewing, eh? So we forgot about her. I took those reviews, the two positives, the many positives I got from those fellows, Herman Colvin and Sidney Harris, and I collected them and decided to then move on to New York in 55, and um, the end of 55, and tried to peddle it. And I started my canvas of New York City, the Big Apple, the block to block. Now, were you primarily hoping to be doing theater in New York, or were you, this was also, of course, I know the golden age of TV there, so was that was that what you were hoping to get in on? The golden age of TV was when I did Mary Tyler Moore. That is true as well. The golden age of live TV, excuse me, yes. Yes. Uh, oh, I, I, I got a few jobs, but I, I was never that warmly welcomed in New York. But I was fortunate enough to, uh, on my rounds of trying to get work, of meeting Carmen Capelbo and Stanley Chase, with the producers of Three Penny Opera. Yes. Quite with the Delice and uh, doing very well. 300 Seat Theater on Christopher Street. 
and uh, they immediately took my visit and um, thought it was brash and cute because uh, we had done a pirated version of Three Penny in Chicago before I left. So uh, they said, well, we'll let you know if we want you. And eventually, I was due for a one-nighter stand at the Phoenix Theater with a uh, turkey of a restoration tragedy called Venice Preserved. The graduates from Michigan were populating that, and I had friends with them, and I scored my way into the cast to be one of the conspirators uh, in Venice, and uh, I conceived the idea of howling like a wolf, <laughs> the signal for which the conspirators would gather, and they did, and uh, I felt it very valuable, and uh, when the coroner finally called, uh, on the beginning of December, and said, uh, we need a replacement for Bob the Saw. He said, oh, God, I'm committed to a one-night thing, so well, maybe I'll, I'll tell him to shut it or whatever. I said, no, 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 no. There'll be other ones. He said, okay. So I did my one-nighter. It, it bombed. And... Um, then in February, I got another call from Carmen. Bob saw needed to be replaced again. And he understudied the police chief, so who was the father of not Jimmy, I can't Lucy. Sure, sure. No problem. Don't you read the play? <laughs> well, that was, a, I know, basically a positive experience, but I got to ask you about Face of a hero where I guess you finally make it to Broadway, which has got to be a exciting thing for any young actor. And then the thing closes after 36 performances or something. Was that part of what drove you to shortly thereafter say, I'm done with New York, I want to try L.A.? Or was it just coincidental? It was coincidental. I, I was, I thought I was very lucky my future wife was working in the office at the time, Nancy, and she helped engineer my getting the role of Harry Cates, the killer, or the, the uh, false witness. And um, I was on stage with a bunch of stars, directed by a powerful person, I forget who it was. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I can remember one statement made by the director. He said, uh, oh, it was good reading, but it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll have to work on that. <laughs> so uh, I guess you convince, I don't know if she was yet your wife or, or was soon to be, but you and your significant other go out to L.A. with what, with what, I mean, I think the thing that's most interesting is you were 32 when you, when you got out to L.A. That I would think is a little 
older than most people who are going to start trying their their luck in L.A., right? Hey, watch your mouth, buddy. <laughs> watch your mouth. Uh, no, no, no. We didn't feel intimidated. We felt we were at the, the cusp of time. And uh, I didn't feel New York had anything planned for me. So I had to try greener fields. I, I just want to briefly mention a couple of the early film roles because I think people will be interested in any memories you might have. I think your film debut was one of the two that you did with Elvis, right? Was that an exciting big deal, Kid Galahad? I don't remember the time. I remember the movies, of course. Yeah. I did uh, Kid Galahad mm-hmm. uh, with Elvis. And then uh, some few years later, did Change of Habit. Mm-hmm. Included Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. We never worked together. So was that, was Elvis, I mean, to you, was that exciting that you're in a movie with, you're in two movies, but first, you know, to begin with, Kid Gala, that you're in a movie with Elvis, was that a big deal? I don't recall being such a big deal. I looked askance at the time. It's fine with you. Three old singers. How about a few years later when you're, sort of the nemesis of John Wayne in El Dorado. Was that more of a, a thrill for you? That was a big, a big leap. Yeah. Yeah, because I was worth a bunch of size still. And uh, I, I remember leaving very early in the morning for uh, Tucson. Jim Davis and an extra named Danny for taking the train or flying with me. And I said, yeah, well, I've been hired for a week to play this character, Mark Jason. And I said, yeah. And then, uh, if they need me, uh, they'll be back to finish up later. And both of those are there now. Now at Hawks, once you start, you, you stay to the finish. So I quickly told my agent that he wasn't aware of that fact. <laughs> said about getting a new contract. Yes. <laughs> okay, so stop me if any of this is incorrect, but I believe it's 1969. You've just played a comedic part in a TV movie, right? Doug Selby, DA, and somebody sees you and gives you a call about another project. What was... Uh, what was the call? Yeah, they wanted me to audition for the boss and Mary Tyler Moore. I had already done Change of Habit with it, but no mention was made of, of doing the series. I went in and uh, Gavin McLeod preceded me at the reading. And even at his reading, he knew I was following him in. He said, uh, he thought I'd be better suited for the role, and he was better suited for Murray. So it's a, so they, they had me come in and read, and I read, and I prodded through the reading, and Jim Brooks said that's a very intelligent reading, and I mumbled, yeah, but it wasn't funny. <laughs> 
Why don't we have you back to read with Mary? We want you to read it all out. Bob Dead, Crazy, Wild, Meshuggah, not so. And I said, because I, I wasn't that expert in comedy. I could do comedy, but it was hit and miss. It never had form. So I said, well, on my way out, I said, well, why don't you let me try it that way now? And if I don't do it, don't have me back. Well, it's a revolutionary statement. I said, well, all right. Oh, I will try it. So I read it that way, like I'm a sugar, and they laughed obligingly, really pleasantly. And uh, Jim said, read it just like that when you come back with Mary. Well, that was a week to 10 days later. I came back, I read. A couple of years after that, after I had the job, found out that Mary said at the time, are you sure? And they said, that's your regret. <laughs> so do you remember what scene they would have they had you audition with? Yeah, the hiring scene. This is the this is the one where I hate spunk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, because naturally any of us would like spunk. <laughs> well so I guess, how soon in this whole process did you realize that you were now a part of something special? Was it just, I mean, with this, was it a situation where you do the pilot and then they literally had to take a while to let you know? I, I, uh, I like what I read. I like what the writers came down with. I had no idea about its longevity. I just knew it was a job. And I didn't know about its breaking barriers for single females. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know that they were oppressed until, uh, <laughs> until I thought they were oppressed. Yes. When, uh, and then uh, slowly began to grow me that we had a hot item here. One question I had was with something like Mary Tyler Moore Show, was there, was it, to the word, stick to the script, or was there improv encouraged in those days? No, there was no improv. Valerie introduced improv in her later scenes, but I did not. Uh, there was a funny thing with, with uh, once I got the job, uh, then they were busy preparing promos in each town that we were to be up here in. And uh, Mary and I were assigned to do it equally for half the country. Well, I wanted to memorize and do the copy that was written and given. And uh, I did about two or three cities, and then my brain just fogged out. <laughs> Mary had to take over the load. She did a great job, a great job. <laughs> And then uh, I was assigned to do the other half of the cities with Cloris Leachman. Well, okay, I'll go, Cloris. I'll go through the same grief again. And I got to Cloris, 
we don't we don't want to do that try to crap we'll just we'll just improvise what a lovely idea i don't know if i've ever done it uh, but we tried and it worked beautifully nice so would you say that you were was was that time as you think back to those years of that show was that fun was it stressful what did you know was it exciting i guess your life must have changed a lot in the as that show took off how just take me back to what it was like to be you just as a forget about the, the job itself just how did it affect your life i had a working i was a working actor on the medium on tv no more one-to-one one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one Waiting for the next gig. I had a permanent gig for at least a year. That's that's sweet. That's <laughs> this is a random question, but I had read one thing. Is it true that you once actually uh, went on a date with Mary? Yeah. What's that? How did the, what, What's the story behind that? It was dull. It was dull. What? What? She? You did? I mean, how did it even come about? This was early in the show, or, or when? Maybe her fiance, who's a good doctor. I don't know. I don't know how it came up, but it was arranged that we would go hand in hand. Was this? This was mid run of the of the series. No, probably towards the end. Towards the end, and and should I? To deduce from that that you guys, even if it didn't go well romantically, you you and she got along really just as as friends. You would always enjoy you had enjoyed each other's company on that show. Yeah, yeah. She was dull. She was dull. Yeah. There was one episode. This was the Chuckles bites the dust episode. I guess TV Guide voted it the greatest episode of TV ever. And I just wonder if you have any memories particularly of that one you know if it's one that you also look back on particularly fondly oh it was it was first of all it was written by uh david lloyd yeah who was a contributing writer for the uh, for the show but uh and he had written others for us but this one stood out because it allowed Mary to be the pigeon of the whole MGM gang. She was the victim. And she was made to feel it every inch of the way. Did, did you ever have a hard time, whether it was in that episode or others, kind of keeping yourself from cracking up on camera? I mean, that one has some very funny stuff in it. No, Would you ever break up? No, we didn't. Uh, uh, Breaking up was part of the joke of the play, but we we did not individually have any trouble keeping a safe face. Where we had trouble was the show wherein uh, I uh, I come in to the office and I somehow have gotten a to pay. Uh, modeling these today, and uh, then lo, lo and behold, Murray, who's bald as a billiard cue uh, ball, uh, works out his toupee and spots him, and then the blow of all blows, 
John Amos is on the show on that particular episode, and he pulls out his toupee. <laughs> everyone. That's great. So uh, just briefly before I, I ask you about the spinoff, there were two things that I guess you must have done either in between that brief period in between Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant, or maybe it was during a hiatus, but just anything you can share about uh, Rich Man, Poor Man, I guess it was maybe the first time since you'd become famous that you were asked to do something not comedic, right? Right, right. Uh, I, um, if I ever fought for a role, I would say I fought for that. Uh, when I first heard that I was being mentioned for it, Felt I was wrong for it. I forget who the actor was that I felt was writer for him. Uh, but Harv Bennett was the uh, creative producer. He said he wanted me. Doki. I don't think I ever in, invested or inherited a role more than that one, wanting it to succeed. I mean, I went to work thinking that the wardrobe department would fix me up with a jerry-built limitation to a leg, which would make me limp. They didn't do anything. I worked up my own accent, which others thought was not that real, but it satisfied for me. And uh, we cooked it. I don't think it's aged in the time that's passed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So that was one of these two in, in between. And then there was also, of course, Roots. And I want to ask you, I mean, huge cultural impact. Another Emmy behemoth uh, of a show. And I, I, I just, if anyone's listening to this who needs a reminder, I guess you're you're playing the conflicted captain who brought over Quinta Quinte. And I wonder if you have any, you know, was this something that you guys ever dreamed could be as huge as it became? Well, first of all, I never thought I had a chance. It was being directed by David Green, who was the director I had a little conflict with on uh, Rich Man. But he certainly wouldn't want me back. Only a phone call talking to the, uh, the line producer. He wanted me, and uh, I thought David Green would reject me, and he didn't. But they first offered me the role of the first mate, played by Bob uh, Wheat. And, uh, and I thought, well, I, I, I've done those roles before. I'd rather do something new. Off with the captain, which brought me into the dignified line of players. And I said, okay. And so they came back to me and they said, fine. So I did that. And 
He was a man haunted by, he was a holy man, but he was haunted by the temptations of the slave ladies and eventually succumbed to them. And to the audience's mind, sold his soul to get a piece of ass. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about not wanting to do things that you'd done before. So I wonder how you responded when somebody says to you, I guess, what do you think about a spinoff of Mary Tyler Moore centered on Lou, but we're going to also in some ways make it very, very different. I mean, this is not really a comedy. It's an hour instead of that. All the different things that were different. What were you immediately agreeable to that or did you were you skeptical? Well, I so trusted my two geniuses of Mary Tyler Moore, Alan Burns and Jim Brooks. I said, whatever you guys say, whatever you guys say. So they said, well, we think we need to go back uh, to his roots, that he wanted to go back to his roots with his newspapers. And uh, we think that an hour show would, would uh, serve it right. And uh, I said, what are you guys saying? What are you guys saying? Because that had been my medium of political merit. And uh, I went back to my roots, and uh, we had the best information show about newspapers you could find. Now, I I came across an, a kind of amazing story that I wonder if you could speak to about how you were seeing, I guess, a therapist at that time, and he pointed out something that you were doing? Yeah. Yeah, I was, he was a Freudian. So uh, when the uh, interview, when the show opened in the fall, I uh, went to my usual meeting with my Freudian therapist. And uh, I waited and I waited. And finally, in the middle of the hearing of the Visitation. I said, well, what did you think? Why do you grimace so much? Wow. Grimace. What's he talking about? And I realized that every time we were doing an hour show, I came from a half hour show, which had a built-in audience at the, at the, at the studio, 300 people. They provided the laughs. Now, of course, we had an editor named David Davis who brought in a laugh or toned them down if they were too much. And he would uh, did a very good job. So that hour show is different. You, you, no, nobody laughs. Uh, whatever the laugh is, you're quiet. The crew keeps quiet. And uh, whoever's in the, in the uh, performance attending. Uh, we didn't have audiences. They keep work. So I said, well, we have to we have to have a, a cue that that's a laugh line and it's okay, but we will laugh at home. So I grimaced as my cue. And when he said that, the greatest piece of advice I ever got from him <laughs> oh my God! It slaps my head, 
I wonder, did you like doing Lou Grant as much as Mary Tyler Moore? Did you feel it was up to the same quality? What was your personal feeling comparing and contrasting the two experiences? I've never been asked that question, but I think I was willing to extend my contract with Mary Tyler Moore for another year just to keep the show going. Also, possibly because of fear, I wouldn't have another job if I didn't. But uh, uh, that wasn't necessary. And the uh, effect of a laugh at the right moment uh, is enormously restorative and energizing. You don't have that with an hour show. You just don't. You're occupying a point of information, of drama, of news, and you're punching it, putting it across, and hopefully the lesson it carries will be inherited and worn and born into the hearing players and into the audience if there are truths. They're not truths, so forget it. So should I should I take from that that you like them differently, but but I guess still it uh, it sounds like you may have had more fun. Yeah, of course. On Mary Tyler Moore. Absolutely. There's nothing more fun than having a rippling laughter from the audience. So was it shocking to you when they you know you guys were doing great in the ratings? People loved the show. You won a bunch more. Emmys, and then they just—I guess it was right before a sixth season—they pull the plug. What? What do you think that was about? No, no. Well, it was the—we uh, did it seven years. Okay, so going into the right before the seventh. Now, during the seventh. Okay. Sorry, but was there? I know that by this point you had become active in SAG, and you—I think at that point you were the president, and I know there was some. Bruhaha, do you believe that that was the the reason why they killed the show? That was after I began making the show. It was during the fifth year of the grant that they decided to cancel it. And that was CBS's cost there. You've said that you think William H. Paley had some particular issue? What did you did you guys know each other? Had you had a had you had a fight or something? No, we, we, uh, I knew I knew that his wife loved the show, uh, but um, he had done it before. He did it with his mother's brothers. He also did it with uh, one of one of the news greats, slamming him down, uh, pulling him back. I thought um, it was done two hours too. Was that painful? Was that you know? Was that shocking? How would you? How did you feel when? Yeah, it put me back on the streets again, uh, and uh, it showed that you're, you're never too big. So, uh, can I just mention a couple other projects that people always associate with? JFK, you and Oliver Stone, I think you both are people who sort of are not afraid to share politically 
outspoken, maybe sometimes unpopular opinions. Did you guys know each other before the movie JFK or was that like, how did anything you can say about that one? I don't remember what prior contact I had had with Ella. He always seemed to be a nervous Nelly. It's as if I had B.O. <laughs> I get too close. You're saying this is about Oliver. But he, he acted like I, I was suffering from B.O. Weird. Know. Yeah, no. So that's uh, that's one of them. I was good. Then how about, of course, you know, a whole new generation of people discovered you through Up. And I just wonder any thoughts on that. And vo- you've done a lot of voice acting, but that one really moved people a lot. Well, my primary source of mail deals with Elf and uh, <laughs> Unsillable Titles. Uh, I love Up. I love Elf. I think Will Ferrell is a genius. And he's the funniest man I came across since Ted Knight. Up was a geniusly written piece of animation and animation by the wonderful company of characters at Pixar. And I, uh, I adore every moment that I got to spend on the screen. So in recent years, I know you've you've done uh, spots on The Good Wife and Modern Family and some of the big shows of the 21st century. And I wonder, is that fun for you? Is it uh, and also, I guess, just what in what ways do you feel that TV has changed the most over the course of your career, which really, of course, spans the whole history of TV? Well, not quite. Not quite. I don't know whether it's my entering nonagenarian years. It's true. It seems like the pandemic has changed everybody's way of life. And I think it's changed performing creativity as much as anything else. I see actors, singers, who have succeeded in a headlining show. I never heard of them, never saw them before. I, my eyesight is not the greatest. My hearing is not the greatest. So I don't go out much. And uh, it's a whole new generation sucked in with the pandemic. Well, that kind of leads me to the final of just your thoughts on a few random topics. One of them is, I believe you've written a new memoir. Anything you want to say about that? Well, it came about almost happenstance. Its title is Son of a Junkman. I hope I lived up to the title. (laughs) And uh, was that something you did during the, you worked on during the pandemic? No. Uh, Well, when does the pandemic begin? Yeah, I guess uh, two marches ago, right? Yeah. I uh, possibly just wanted to began. Sam Joseph uh, had done uh, one of his creations and performed well with it. Um, and uh, he came to me, uh, and I had no, no one standing in line to write my biography. So I said, go ahead. 
And um, when uh, Matthew Seymour, uh, a lawyer friend of mine, who was unemployed at the time, he did not like the approach that Sam made, so he'd like to work with it. So he wrote half the book, and Sam's questions take up the other half. Okay, so that's one of the big picture things. Another is you mentioned COVID. Is that something, I mean, I ask this to everybody I interview. I mean, how would you say it has changed the way you were living before we all, you know, before this hit? Were you were you going out more? Are you are you concerned about, is it something that worries you? Just any thoughts on the pandemic? It changed my life. I mean, I'm, I sit here most of the time, bored as hell. Not sure which way to turn. I don't know. I'm waiting for the next gig. And they're slower in coming in now, I can tell you. Is that, is it just that there are fewer gigs because of the pandemic or because are you reluctant to accept a gig because of the health risks? No, no, no. Health risks. How about SAG-AFTRA politics? I know that you, as we said, had your terms as president. Now I believe you're part of this back and forth about the the, a lot of people have lost their health coverage. Is that, t- I know that you feel, I believe you feel quite passionately about that. Can you share what your, what your feeling is? Well, I gave them my name and they used my name prominently and pursued the suit. Uh, I am um, always been a member of members, membership first, which is the rebel group of SAG, and um, I feel that um, that we have a point that uh, the suit is uh, is very warranted, and uh, keep waiting for the results of the suit. Let's just say there's somebody listening who doesn't know what's going on. What is it that you are, you and your fellow uh, signatories are are asking? Now, now you're asking common sense. <laughs> I, as if I could, why don't you tell me and I'll, I'll tell you whether I agree with you. Well, I mean, it sounds like the, because of, I don't know, I guess some something has happened at SAG where they've kicked a lot of people off their coverage. Is that right? They offered us uh, an ability to choose to take our pension now or later. And and uh, I forget exactly how it was administered, but uh, uh, residuals would not count if you took your pension now. They would count later if you delayed taking your pension. And uh, the results were that uh, the fund ran out of money. And people who elected to take their pensions now for square residuals were punished badly. I think I'm telling the, the way of the residuals. Please publish it if I'm wrong. Sure. No, I mean, I, I'm not, to- I was just not totally un- uh, aware of the whole situation, but I saw that it was something you were involved in. So I thought I'd bring it up, but that was, here's another one. Is Gavin Newsom your nephew? He was my nephew by marriage. By marriage. So, of course, I have to ask you, uh, I literally just filled out my ballot before we got on this call. 
make the case, if you would, should he or should he not be recalled? I think he is a very, very bright, promising, honest politician who made a mistake. One of the many who have made mistakes all their lives. I think that um, he, uh, he made a mistake and he's being made to pay for it. And that mistake should not drive him from office because I think he's got qualities worthy of the highest office of the land. Yeah. Coming to the last last few here, but I believe that you were, I, at one time you, I think, described your, your politics as socialist. I know you're very enamored with FDR, like a lot of people who, you know, suddenly socialism is uh, a dirty word, but I mean, it was okay in the New Deal and people are, so I just, I guess I'm curious if you, if you don't mind me asking, 2020, were you for Biden, for Bernie, I guess, and then also whoever you were for, how do you feel about how it's going? Well, I think Afghanistan is a terrible setback for Biden, although he is certainly not to blame. Uh, he's only been in office six months, for God's sake. As if you can blame the loss of 20 years of battle on him. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. But I'm sure he knows how to buckle under and take it. I think he's done a great job with the welfare bill. And uh, I think that uh, we'll be a bigger and better country when he comes to the end of this. Can I assume you were not a fan of Donald Trump? Oh, God. <laughs> not your cup of tea. I looked at the New York Times yesterday's enclosure, a special section on the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the invasion. It's, uh, it's a pity, but uh, I think we'll outlive that too. Well, we are slow to change. Being the greatest so-called liberal giant in the world, uh, it takes time to affect the changes that smaller democracies have already employed. What's the best and worst part of getting a bit older? Well, if you've got your brains not being employed when you uh, had your youth. Now, granted, we don't use old people the way you use youth. But still, there has to be a better employment achievement than what we're facing. So you're saying, you mean, as in terms of acting, actors who are older, that, but I mean, I guess just generally, uh, you know, in terms of getting older, is there something that you've found that you really like about it? And then something that, forget about the acting side, just at, about being older that you, that you wish was not the case? No, it's, uh, uh, it's the fourth man through the door. It's, you're not as busy as you would like. And, uh, and as you would have time for. It was better before. But then I never, you, you never do have enough jobs. You don't. Well, on a related note, how old do you feel? If it weren't for my bad left leg, I would feel younger. I got many parts that need to be 
bolstered and refurbished. And I haven't got time or the lack of pain to undergo all those changes. How does it feel knowing that, you know, you look back at Mary Tyler Moore, for instance, right? That era, a great time in your life. And essentially, of the principal cast, you're the last man standing, right? Well, there's Betty White. Well, all right. So here's the final question I'm going to bother you with. What's still on the bucket list? What do you, what is important to you to do before, you know, it's all over for all, any of us, you know, we all have our things that are important to us. What is it for you that you've done pretty much everything I would think. You know, I haven't climbed, I haven't climbed sort of bought you. <laughs> I think uh, just ensuring that I, I left enough for the family. Well, thank you for leaving so many laughs and for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.